here we go. I switched this thing off last week when I was putting it in my pocket. And then I had to come and preach the sermon again on my own. <laughs> Just me and the, the spiders, you know. But two, two spiders responded afterwards to an invitation for salvation. And a moth got filled with the Holy Ghost on, on Sunday night late last week. So I'm going to try not to switch it off as I put it in here. Now for something completely different. We have spent, I'm paranoid now, I want to check that I haven't switched it off. We have spent a long time on a series called The Rebuilders. It is over. And now we're heading in a very different direction um, to, to think about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. I'm going to spend probably six, seven weeks between now and Advent. The art is by a guy called Lance Brown. Lance Brown. And he's one of the, he, I, I know nothing about art, but he, he's referred to as a speed painter. And he's one of these guys, I don't know if you've ever seen it, sometimes at big churches in America during worship, there'll be somebody on stage painting. It seems a bit strange, but this, was, this came out of one of those. He painted that in about six minutes uh, on, on a stage one night. You can see a video on YouTube, Lance Brown, um, there's a band in the background, but for some reason there's a different audio track. It must be copyright that, that's over the video. But you can watch him in about six minutes, starting from, from scratch and painting that. And I found it yesterday and I just thought, that's class. So the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus said in John chapter 7 and verse 37. John records that on the last and greatest day of the festival, this, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, which is around about this time of year, actually, in, in the Jewish calendar. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Is anyone thirsty? What I'm going to do today is sort of change of pace from, from normal. Uh, I want to tell a little bit of my own story in these things and give a, a just set up the, the series that we're going to go on on the Holy Spirit. Um, this is something that I love to speak about. I love to read about. And I really hope that this journey we're about to begin will be something you will look back on in years and years and, and see it as a point of real renewal and change and power in your in your Christian journey. I was was brought up as a uh, you know in a Christian home. We went to the Church of Ireland, and every week we said the Apostles' Creed. And part of the Apostles' Creed was I believe in the Holy Spirit, and that's all that I really heard about the Holy Spirit. Um, sometimes he was referred to in church in the liturgy as the Holy Ghost, which is a bit weird when you're a child and nobody tells you what's going on. You just keep hearing about this Holy Ghost. Um, and the church, the church that we were at was, you know, solid, good church. The, the minister was a Christian. He was a good man. Just didn't talk about the Holy Spirit an awful lot. So I didn't know much about it. Um, and I, had, I wasn't, you know, a follower of Jesus until I was 21. There were several experiences in my teens when I felt God just sort of putting his finger on me at, at things like BB Camp. God bless the BB, pray for the BB. And BB camp maybe down in the south of England and just would have had an experience of God stirring me up and, and various things like that. But it wasn't, it wasn't until 1998 
when I was 21, back from university, that, that I really made the, the life-changing commitment to follow Jesus. And I was hungry right from the start. I was hungry and I was thirsty. I really, I, was, I just wanted Jesus and I wanted scripture and I wanted truth. And I wasn't very discerning about the books that I read because I had this idea, 21, fresh out of the gates, Christian, that if it's in the Christian bookshop, then it's all right. (laughs) And uh, there wasn't that many Christian bookshops and there wasn't just probably as many Christian books as there are now. But uh, I I just lifted whatever, you know, there seemed to be lots of copies of and, uh, and, and read. And there were two authors that I read in particular in the early days. And I'm not going to mention their names because I don't want to, you know, just don't do that whole sort of dissing other people thing. But these two guys, I I read quite a lot of their books. Um, Some of them were at home on the bookshelf. Uh, They were um, just, they'd been in the house for years and I sort of lifted them and started reading them. One was a series of commentaries and I just loved reading the Bible and I loved reading commentaries and I read this guy's commentaries. But he was anti-Pentecostal. And he was anti-charismatic and he was opposed to anything about the power of the Holy Spirit in the modern day church. And then there was another guy whose whose name you would definitely know, but again, I don't don't want to rubbish him. Um, But in recent years, he's become really quite, quite a grumpy old man, to be honest. You know, he publicly mocks the idea of women in ministry. He doesn't just sort of state a case why he's opposed to it, but he publicly mocks them for for preaching and leading. Um, and he, he influenced a lot of Christians worldwide in the last couple of years to rebel against government and medical advice during the pandemic. Um, but again, he was on the bookshelf and I lifted him and I read him and you know he was reasonably good with words. And, but again, he was anti-Pentecostal. He was opposed to the power of the Holy Spirit moving in the modern church. I actually have a picture of of these guys. There you go. (laughs) There's one of them there. Um, That's, you know, that's not really him, okay? Uh, So so the fire of the Holy Ghost and what these guys come along and do is they just, you know, great big hose, try to put it out. And that's, that's what I listened or what I read a lot in those early days. And it caused me to, to come to the conclusion, early 20s, young Christian, basically that the Holy Spirit had retired. That he had done all the stuff in the New Testament and then since then he didn't really do anything. That nothing powerful should ever really happen to or through God's people. And being a Christian basically involved reading your Bible, praying and trying to be a decent spot. And, and that, was, that was largely it and that view was largely formed by, by some of those books. So I was frustrated. I was still thirsty for more of God, but I had developed a wee mindset myself that would have been not anti-Pentecostal, but not far from it. Thirsty for more of God. And round about that time, I met a pretty girl who was in the same place in her walk with God. And we talked a lot about the scriptures because, you know, I know how to have a good time, you know. And and we got our Bibles and we we talked about Jesus and we went to church and, and various different places and, and we were both in that same sort of place in our walk with God where we were just thirsty and hungry for more and, and not really quite sure where to, where to get it or what to do. Um, and at that time, Whitewell was a sort of a, a, you know, a big happening church in Belfast and we started to head down to Whitewell on a Sunday night. 
And uh, I can remember hearing Pastor McConnell preach for the first time. And regardless of, of whether or not one lines up with everything that he personally believed is not the issue, when I heard that man preach, I knew he had something that I didn't have. There was a fire. There was a passion. Um, it was really inspiring. I, I still can remember where we were in the building the first time we went and the first time I heard him. And I remember just thinking, what on earth has got into him? <laughs> what has got into him? And I found out then after a while that, that that was a Pentecostal church, which to me meant you know, very little other than my authors had told me it wasn't good. Um, but there was something about it, something about how the people acted and how they sang and how the word was, was proclaimed that just had a fire and a passion that started to stir me. And then we went to another Pentecostal church near Armagh that a few of you know, and we, we settled there for about 12 years. And I kept hearing this phrase in the early days there, you need to be baptized in the spirit. Heard it over and over and over again. Uh, I didn't know exactly what it was, but one night there was a guy there who was preaching. And some of you, again, when I say who he, who he was, you'll recognize him immediately. But he was a charismatic ex-priest who was married to an ex-nun. <laughs> he just couldn't make it up. Class. And this wee guy was just a wee fireball. Like, he really was. He, he was just, whether it was his, his training previously in, in the Roman Catholic Church or what, he knew the Bible. I mean, it was just awesome, like, listening to him preach and uh, Old Testament, New Testament, the whole, the whole shooting match. And uh, one Sunday night, he was there and he was speaking. And after he had finished speaking, he said, he sort of made an invitation. He said, if you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, come on up to the front and I'll pray for you. And I thought, okay, <laughs> we'll go. And away we went, not quite knowing what, what baptism in the Holy Spirit meant yet, but sounded good. And I went up to the front and he put his hand on my head and he prayed for me and he asked me to try to speak in tongues and nothing happened. <laughs> you know? And I remember walking out into the car park afterwards just thinking, nothing happened. <laughs> you know? I wanted to have some big power encounter with God and nothing appeared to happen. But I was undeterred and I continued to study the scripture regarding this matter of the Holy Spirit. I got a bit confused by terminology sometimes, but I persisted and I came to the conclusion from the scriptures that the life-giving power and presence of the Holy Spirit should be active in the church, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit should be active in the church, that there's a dimension of spirit-empowered living that I just was not experiencing, but was now utterly convinced from this that I should be. And I began to pray more and more that I would encounter the Holy Ghost. That all these terms that I heard other people use about being baptized or filled, or there's lots of different things people say, and they all largely mean the same thing. They, they want you to just really encounter the Holy Spirit and live a full, empowered Christian life. And we'll look at some of these terms over the next couple of weeks. But I began to pray and just ask God, come on, fill me, whatever, baptize, do what you want. I don't care what it's called, but I want it. <laughs> and I want it now. And I began to pray that, that if, you know, if speaking in tongues was right, then I wanted to do it. 
because I wanted my prayer life to be empowered. I wanted it to be in line with Scripture. I wanted everything, all right? I was just hungry for God. And one day in, a, in 2003, upstairs in, in our first house in Castle Rise in Tandragee, while on my own, having my quiet time, just praying, no one else there, no one to lay hands on me, no one to pray for me, no, one, no sensationalism, I prayed in tongues. And I knew at that moment that I was not making it up, that it was not gibberish, that I was not just sort of, you know, making a few random syllables. I knew that what I was saying was coherent words. I didn't understand what it meant, but I knew that it was real. And my prayer life soared, just soared. And I then have later found out that I'm in reasonably good company. The man who has preached to more people in one shot than anyone else on the earth ever, I think, is this man. And I think it was last week. Justin Welby, in six minutes at the Queen's funeral, landed sledgehammer after sledgehammer of truth. That six-minute sermon was actually incredible. I couldn't preach a six-minute sermon. You know that. You maybe wish that I could. But what he communicated in six minutes was unreal. The power, the authority, the truth in his words, the, the, the focus on Jesus, the message of hope, the stinging rebuke against those who would cling on to power instead of serving in love. It was powerful. And four billion people had their TV on. Four billion. <laughs> Unreal. 37 million in the UK had their TV on and heard this sermon. And he, in an interview with Premier Christian Radio, which is a great radio station and a great website and a great podcast and just great all around, in 2019, talked to them about his prayer life and told them how he prays in tongues every single morning at 5 a.m. as part of his daily routine of devotion and prayer. Justin Welby. And I don't think the Guardian newspaper quite sort of got their heads around this. They thought this was a bit weird. But it was in that and it was on BBC News and various other newspapers as well. And I found out that, that my own beloved mentor who I've never met, Tom Wright, same thing. He's Anglican. You'll see a picture of him a wee bit later in the presentation. Present tongues every day. Where's the robes? Where's the collar? <laughs> but he's passionate about the Holy Ghost. And I began to pray more and more for this full life in the Holy Spirit. I am not Pentecostal by birth or by upbringing or by coming under the influence of a particular teacher or leader. I am Pentecostal by choice. <laughs> From studying the scriptures and being convinced that the Spirit should move in power. And in the past, I have found Pentecostal teaching on the topic a wee bit unsatisfying sometimes. It usually left me with more questions than answers. And I have found over the years, I have aligned myself with people like Gordon Fee, Rick Watts, Craig Keener, note the Mac, and Bishop Tom. And these guys have been my coaches, my mentors, because they are passionate about the power of the Holy Spirit. And I mean they are passionate. And yet they are also scholars of the highest regard in the, in the Christian world. <coughs> Men of 
just phenomenal intellect and depth. And every one of them filled with the Holy Ghost, praying in tongues, believing in the power of the Spirit in the church today. Love it. And I believe, you know, my own journey is maybe to help me just to minister to people in a similar position who have come from various different backgrounds, various different influences, maybe raised in quite a traditional way, hungry for God, thirsty for God, but struggling on a wee bit in your own strength. And I'm not trying to defend my own experience or the viewpoint of a church. I'm trying, as you see over the next few weeks, to be faithful to Scripture in all of this. Really faithful to Scripture. And I hope I can convince you, if you're skeptical, that you would become passionately thirsty for the Holy Ghost. And I hope if you're already Pentecostal, charismatic, whatever term you want to use, that you will want then to be utterly biblical in all of your practices. Word and spirit. Word and spirit. So are you thirsty? Do you ever feel dry in your Christian life? Do you ever feel you're at the bottom of the barrel, scratching around, trying to find a few molecules of water just to quench your thirst? Maybe you've pondered these things before and you've never really got anywhere with it. Maybe you need renewal. One of the things I feel God just saying to me this past few months, it's a word that Linda's used a fair bit as well, just that need for personal renewal. That the last few years have been tiring and there's been a lot of, a lot of running around and a lot of adapting and changing and a lot of hard work in various contexts and, and the barrel's got a bit dry. And just the desire for a personal renewal, a fresh encounter, a fresh awakening in the Holy Spirit. So the reason for doing this, this series is, is that I want this church, I want us to be utterly Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered. I want to look at who is the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit? Does it happen once or is it an ongoing experience? If you've been around, you'll know we're already the views that we have on such things. And I hope, again, they're utterly biblical and they're not just sort of based on a phrase here or there. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What are the gifts of the Spirit? I want to take probably a whole morning to talk about prayer in tongues. What does the Bible say about it? Prophecy, healing. And unfortunately, one thing that I am almost certain of, and it's not my intention, I'm probably going to offend everybody at some point. <laughs> okay, It's the nature of the beast. If you put two people in a room to talk about the Holy Spirit, you'll have three opinions. <laughs> it just, it's something that, that, that we have different views on, different backgrounds, different influences. We'll stick to the scripture as much as we can. But at some point, you will probably find something, just a wee bell getting rung, a cage getting rattled, an egg getting fried, whatever. You will find something that is maybe precious to you and your own experience. Uh, and, and I might challenge that. And it's not my intention to offend. It's my intention to stir people up to think scripturally and biblically about life in the Spirit. I hope that you will be challenged and I hope that you will be parched with thirst and crying out for the Holy Ghost. I hope our prayer meetings change on a Tuesday night and, and as well as all the, all the things we normally pray for, that there will be a, a, a desperation and a yearning Holy Spirit come. <laughs> 
come and fill us. I hope our worship as well on Sunday morning. I just love the way we've worshipped again in, in recent weeks. And I hope there's just that hunger, that yearning. Come on, Holy Spirit, come and fill us afresh. Fill us afresh. So where do we begin? Well, basically where we begin every sermon. <laughs> Genesis 1. <laughs> there is a theme, I guess. It used to be the theme in my life. People laughed at me and they thought the only book in my Bible was John because I never seemed to ever preach or teach from anything else. But Genesis 1 seems to be the launch part for most sermons. And if you're scared because this last couple of weeks we've covered a lot of ground, we're not doing that today. It's just, it's okay. We're, we're driving a bit slower today. So Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Someday we'll preach just on Genesis 1 rather than just doing the first two verses and then, you know, springboarding all over the place. Formless and empty is how the world is described in Genesis 1. It has no shape and it has no structure and there's nothing in it to fill it. And, and this beautiful thing, you know, to give you a preview of a forthcoming possible sermon on Genesis 1. Um, in the six days of creation, in the first three days, God gives form to everything. And then in the second three days, he fills everything. It's formless and empty. And he brings form and he brings filling. And it's actually as a beautiful structure it is not a science textbook it is pure poetry it is absolutely stunning and it's to to let us know that God made everything and in Hebrew here is what tried this before one time and got really tongue-tied but in Hebrew formless and empty even sounds formless and empty tohu wavohu try it tohu wavohu yes That is the Hebrew for formless and empty. That's what the world was like. It was chaotic. It was dark. It had no shape. It had no structure. And you know what? That describes human life for a lot of people. Dark, without form, without structure, empty, just a wasteland, an uninhabited wasteland. One of the scriptures, I think, right at the end of last week's message from Isaiah 58 in in Eugene Peterson's message version talked about making the community livable again. Without God and without the Spirit, the, the community is a wasteland. It is dark, it is empty, it is uninhabitable. And the question is, can anyone bring order where there is chaos? And who will do it? And the person who will do it, we are told, is the Spirit of God. The earth was formless and empty, darkness over the surface of the deep, and the agent of change is going to be the Holy Spirit, the agent of change, the agent of creation. And I think whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit in church, a lot of us, we we run to various different things and we think, well, the Holy Spirit does this and the Holy Spirit maybe does that and does that. And, And one of the things that I love to try to do if I'm teaching on the Holy Spirit is I want you to have just a huge, huge picture of what the Holy Spirit does. I don't want you to box him in to the Holy Spirit gives people, you know, gifts or the Holy Spirit transforms people's character. The Holy Spirit is just so much bigger than those things. 
And there he is in Genesis 1, hovering over the darkness, over the chaos. And the Hebrew writers have to get a word for this. Have you ever tried describing something awesome to somebody? And you get really frustrated because you're limited by the English language (laughs) or any language. And I was trying to think, I'm not widely traveled. So I, have, I probably have not seen anything that you have not all seen. It is rare that I get out of Ulster, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but way back in the early days with that pretty girl who discovered Pentecostalism with me, we went to the United States and we, we sort of did... Two extremes, we spent four or five days in in New York City, which is about all you can do in New York. It's a wonderful place, but after four or five days, you're totally wrecked. And then we went to the beauty of a forest in Pennsylvania, where Linda used to go to a, a camp during the summer. And she talked about this place and wanted to go back, and we got back, and goodness me, it was something else. But one night... We sat, we went for a wee walk, um, and we sat, there was like a wooden bandstand type thing, and we sat and watched fireflies. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Unbelievable. Just, and you try to describe that to somebody. <laughs> like lots of little light bulbs all moving around, or Christmas LEDs, but there's no wires in between them, and they're going on and off, and they're, oh, it was the most stunning thing. And if, you know, whenever the Hebrew writers are trying to describe something, they have to reach for a word. They have to, like when, when John, even in the New Testament, is talking about the voice of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he, say, he borrows from Ezekiel and he says, his voice is like the rushing of many waters. Because that was the loudest thing he could think of. If we were to describe now, we would maybe say his voice is like the sonic boom of a, of a jet plane. But he didn't have that. And he said, what's the loudest thing I can think of? Rushing waters. Right, we'll go with that. And in, in Genesis, there's a word that the Hebrew writers reach for to try to describe the Spirit of God. And they, they reach for the Hebrew word, ruach. It's another one of those words that you have to sort of clear your throat at the end of it. Ruach is the word for Spirit. And if we look at this word, then what we do is we start to understand a wee bit about who the Holy Spirit is. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read that God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the ruach of life, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So the first time you encounter this word that you've read in Genesis 1 and chapter 2, or, or verse 2 for the Spirit, the first time after that that you encounter it, it's breath. The Spirit is, is the word that they use is the word for breath. And if you hold your hand in front of your mouth and speak, as you speak your words, breath comes out and hits your hand. Your, your word comes forth propelled by your breath. That's why God's word and God's spirit are inseparable in the scriptures. And breath gives us life. So one of, the, one of the first things I think the biblical writers want us to know about spirit of God is that he gives life. Forget about the gifts for now, we'll get there. Forget about the fruit, we'll get there. Let's just broaden it out. He gives life. 
The man only became a living creature when the breath, the ruach of life came into him. So one of the things that the Spirit brings to us is life. It brings new life as a Christian. And according to the Scriptures then, without the Spirit, you are not, you cannot be fully alive. You cannot be fully human because we were designed, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, images of God. And the last thing put into the temple in the Garden of Eden is the image of God. And he breathes his presence and his spirit into the image and brings it to life. And the flip side of that is if we don't have that spirit within us, we're not alive. We're not fully alive. And if we buy into a version of Christianity that, that just talks about the Father and the Son, that just talks about getting our sins forgiven, that just talks about going to heaven when we die, and never talks about spirit and life, we will never be fully alive. So the spirit, according to the early chapters of Genesis, gives life. Whenever you read Exodus chapter 14 about the miraculous parting of the Red Sea, we read that the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east ruach all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. So another image for the Spirit. So far we've got that that the Hebrews have reached for the word that's used for breath, this ruach word. And now they're also using the same word for wind. So ruach can mean breath and it can mean wind. The breath speaks about life. The wind speaks about power, power. The the Christian life is an empowered life. And And the wind, you cannot see it. And thankfully, we haven't experienced too much of it yet this year. But the wind, you don't see it, but you see its effects. If the wind is moving, other stuff will move. If the spirit is moving, then God's people will move as well. The Spirit gives power as well as life. I have a lawnmower. I like my lawnmower. It's a walk-behind lawnmower because I, I like walking. Um, and this, this lawnmower has got uh, like a, a roller at the back. Instead of two wheels at the back of the lawnmower, it's got a roller. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the roller is powered by the engine. So, the, you know, as you walk behind the lawnmower, the lawnmower, you're directing it, but it's, it's powered by, by the engine itself. And uh, I, I'm one of those slightly weird fish who I, I enjoy cutting grass if I've got time. If I don't have time, I don't really. If I'm trying to dodge between rain showers and things in the calendar to get the grass cut, then I hate it. But if I've got time, I like it. Fresh air, good podcast on, the smell of freshly cut grass. That's delightful. But one day, the lawnmower stopped powering the roller at the back. Now, I've, already, I've always known the lawnmower was quite heavy because I've lifted it into the car several times um, to cut other people's grass or to bring it for servicing because I'm inept at servicing. And I knew it was heavy. But that day, whenever the roller stopped turning, I had about a third of the lawn cut. And I'm the sort of guy who just couldn't sleep at night if he knew <laughs> that a third of the lawn was cut and two-thirds of it wasn't. And any other person might have just pushed the mower into the garage and left it and thought, well, take that to get it fixed. But no, I pushed the mower for the, for the rest of the lawn. And it's a right out lump of a lawn. 
And by then, I knew the mower was heavy. By the time I was done, I really knew it was heavy and I was done. Because you see, the thing should have been powered, but I was pushing it. And I think that's a lot of Christians. Life should be empowered by the Spirit, but we're pushing it. We're doing so much in our own effort, by our own strength. We're clean knackered, we're discouraged, and it's all just a heavy load. And suddenly something that was meant to be a joy and a delight, still hard, but a joy and a delight, walking in the Spirit, following Jesus, is just really hard work. Because we're pushing something that's meant to be empowered. And a third thing that the Spirit does, and back to Genesis 1 again, this chaos, formlessness, emptiness, darkness, the Spirit of God hovering over that brings order, renewal, creation, new creation in the New Testament, life, power, and order. We will get to the other things in the New Testament that people love to talk about when they're talking about the Spirit. But first of all, think bigger. The Spirit gives me life. He breathes into me new life of Christ. He gives me power for living the Christian life. And he brings order where there is chaos. And in our world, there's a lot of death and there's a lot of weakness and there's a lot of chaos. And people need the Holy Spirit. Is anyone thirsty? A bunch of Greeks came along and translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. There were 70 of them, and that's why their translation is called the Septuagint. It's symbolized with the Roman numeral for the number 70, and it's the Bible Paul would have used. He quoted a lot of the time from this Greek version of the Old Testament. And when they wanted to then decide, how are we going to take this ruach in Hebrew, breath, uh, spirit, wind, how are we going to put that into Greek? They took the word pneuma, pneuma, from which we get pneumatic. And something that is pneumatic is powered or operated by air pressure. You're meant to be a pneumatic human being. You're meant to be powered by the movement of the air, the wind, the breath of the Spirit. That's meant to power you. Apparently a pneumothorax is a collapsed lung where the air is not going where it's meant to go. So this this word pneuma is, is, is how the Greeks translated it. And then after them along came a dude called Jerome. I've got a picture of him. Look at him. Uh-huh. Bible studies, great fun, Jerome, isn't it? Does look like he's checking who's naughty and nice, though, as well, sitting with his list. <laughs> Christmas Eve, you know. Um, but Jerome, <laughs> go away. Uh, Jerome was responsible for a Latin translation of the Bible, and he used the Latin word spirare, which means to breathe, as in inspire what the word inspire literally means is to breathe in inspire to expire is to breathe out and then in his version of genesis 1 the spirit of god is spiritus dei and that's why we've ended up in english with the word spirit it was ruach in hebrew became pneuma in greek became spiritus in latin and is now spirit for us breath wind life air, all of these images that you're meant to think of 
when you think about the Holy Spirit. And as we go through the scriptures, we get more. We get liquid images, water images and oil images, and we get the dove and lots of different things. But originally and at its very heart, it is about breath and wind. As we finish, let's just jump to the New Testament and see Paul's frustration with the Christians in a place called Galatia. Paul's letters nearly always start with a lovely introduction where he's thanking God for everybody and everything's great and he gives them a wee update about what's going on. Um, Galatians, he doesn't really. Galatians, he says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. Now that's a bit stingy. Yeah, Paul was the guest speaker on a Sunday morning and he got up and said that. You mightn't be that keen. I'm astonished you're deserting the grace of Christ. You're turning to a different gospel. His guns are fully loaded. And by chapter 3, he's just really going at it. And he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Oh stupid tablers. All right? Stingy, isn't it? But that's, that's the way he's writing to these Galatian Christians. And look what he says. After beginning by means of the Spirit, in other words, the beginning of the Christian life is a work of the Holy Spirit. Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Are you now trying to live the rest of the Christian life in your own effort pushing the lawnmower? And just look at his terminology again. Back to verse 2 of Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit? He doesn't say, did you get saved? He doesn't say, did you get born again? He doesn't say, did you get your sins forgiven? He believes all of those things. But the terminology he uses for the start of the Christian life, moving from death and sin to being alive with Christ, is receiving the Spirit, the breath. It's like God gives you mouth to mouth and revives you. It's the same in Acts chapter 19, speaking in Ephesus to a, to a group of disciples of John the Baptist or who follow John the Baptist's teaching. He says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? For Paul, the Christian life begins as an act of the Spirit and is meant to continue as an act of the Spirit. It's like whenever we become Christians, we breathe in, but then loads of us try to live holding our breath for the rest of our lives and we never breathe in again and it gets really hard after a very short period of time by definition if there's no breath there's no life and if there's no spirit within us we are not alive as Christians it's like getting into a car without an engine and saying I'll just push it it'll be alright it'll not you'll quit and the solution is Power. Acts 1, you will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes in you. And you'll be my witnesses. You'll show the world what I'm like. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays that out, out of his glorious riches, Jesus may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in the inner man. And let me finish with a little picture. Again, if you've been around for a while, you've heard this, but I want you to hear it again because it's beautiful. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. In the Bible, sleep is frequently an image for death. Now, Adam didn't die on this occasion. Um, 
But when you read in Kings and Chronicles, you'll read that somebody slept with their fathers, which means they have died, they've passed away and gone on to be with their ancestors. God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. The Hebrew doesn't actually say that. It just says he took part of the man's side. And then, obviously, the word rib has been stuck in by English translators. It's not, it's not bad. He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. So in order for Adam to have a bride, something was taken from his side. Yeah, side was opened up and something was taken out. A bride was formed and she was brought to Adam. Now back to John, all right? Genesis to John, favorite books. Um, in John 19, Jesus is dead, all right? He's not asleep, but he is, he's dead. Jesus described as the last Adam by Paul true son of God. And in John 19, Jesus is dead. And to check that he's dead, one of the soldiers comes along and pierces him with a spear in his side. And as always, I picture it, and I want you to picture it. And as always, I've got Christopher Nolan and his gang of, of IMAX you know, cameramen with me making the movie the way I want it made. And I can see Jesus on the cross. Can you see him? Head hanging down, body wrecked, completely naked. There's no dignity about crucifixion. There was no cloth wrapped around his waist. He was naked. And he hangs on that cross, and he's dead. And the soldier pierces his side with the spear. And then the soldiers gather up their belongings, and they head home. And there's nobody there anymore. Probably a few dogs licking the blood off the wood at the bottom of the cross. Nobody else about. And the camera starts to sort of zoom in slowly on, on Jesus. And then particularly on his side. And you can see the blood flowing from, from where the spear went into the wound. And life you know, has gone completely. He has poured out his life for us for the forgiveness of sins. But then the blood stops and water starts to flow. And in that moment, you learn in a few words so much about Jesus and so much about the Christian life. This is not the end. The, the, the blood flowing and the corpse hanging there, that's not the end. This is the beginning. <laughs> this is the beginning. In the beginning. There's water flowing as well. And if you know John's gospel, you know that throughout John's gospel, the Holy Spirit is represented by water. John 4 at the well. John 7, the Feast of Tabernacles where we started. The water begins to flow. And God has taken from Jesus' side where the spear went in, like Adam's side that was opened up, God has taken what he needs to make a bride. He needs blood. Because humanity needs to be forgiven of their sins. Jesus cannot have a bride that is sinful. So he takes blood in order to, to cleanse people and atone for their sin. But he also takes water to fill them with the Holy Ghost and make them into the church, the bride of Christ. Just like Adam's bride was brought to him, having been made from something taken from his side, 
the same thing happens with Jesus. And again, I can picture God bringing his bride to him and saying, look what I made while you were asleep. (laughs) Blood to cleanse from sin. We hear a lot about that in Northern Ireland. Thank God we do. Okay, we know about the blood, but we don't know enough about the water. (laughs) And too many Christians are pushing the lawnmower. Never told about the power that is available to live the Christian life. So the Spirit gives life, gives power, brings order out of chaos, forms the church. And later the biblical writers use this water imagery. And the question I have for you is, are you thirsty? I am thirsty. I want renewal. I have walked in the Spirit for many years. I want more. (laughs) I want refilled, refreshed, reawakened. I want to see others as well hungering and thirsting after God, empowered by the Holy Ghost, experiencing things they've never experienced for the glory of God. That's what we want. That's what we want. Let's worship.